Upstate Medical University in Syracuse, New York, invites you to be the informed patient with the podcast that features experts from Central New York's only academic medical center. I'm your host, Amber Smith. Doctors and nurses and medical technicians at Upstate repair the physical wounds of patients who are victims of street violence. Specialized social workers focus on preventing recurrence of that street violence. With me to explain the role of Upstate's Violence Education Prevention Outreach Program are Rubina Dillon and Renee Gregg. They're both social workers at Upstate. Welcome to the Informed Patient, Ms. Dillon and Ms. Gregg. Thank you. Thank you. Upstate University Hospital is designated as a level one trauma center, which means it has expertise in caring for trauma patients and people who suffer gunshot wounds or stabbings or assaults. They often receive treatment at Upstate. So it makes sense that the hospital would have a violence prevention program. Can you tell us how this program began, Ms. Gregg? So our program began in 2015. We were trying to design something that would stand out, that is policy-driven and research-based, that works with anyone who comes in for non-incidental injuries. And in April of this year, we added another program, which is called no, should not use guns. And Rabina, please tell us about that. My program began back in 2009 when 10 cities in the state of New York received funding to work to prevent gun and gang violence. And then in 2019, SNUG received additional funding to not only expand, but also to integrate a social worker and case manager position. We all know that gun violence is a public health issue, and statistics actually show that 60% of the homicides in the U.S., a gun is a weapon that is being used. And so what we try to do is recognize that violence is a learned behavior that can be prevented. So SNUG tries to use the Cure Violence model from Chicago in addressing violence reduction. Yeah. And in Syracuse in 2021, which was last year, we had 31 murders related to street violence. So it's a known problem and Upstate, it sounds like, has stepped up to try to help solve it. Yes, absolutely. Well, tell me a little bit about what you do as social workers in these programs. Are you located physically in the hospital, both of you? Yes, I'm in the hospital and in the community. I do home visits to our patients' homes, go with them to doctor's appointments and that things. And Robina is located right here in the hospital. But what we do is we meet the patient at their most vulnerable point. That's when they come into the hospital emergency room with their injuries. We introduce ourselves and we try to establish relationships with them so that we can eventually provide life-changing services to them. So we try to provide trauma-informed counseling. We like to meet the patient where they're at, assist in advocacy, assistance with filing a victim compensation application that is through the state. And we try to connect the individuals with other services that are either identified or needed. So really, we work with survivors of violence, whether, as mentioned, it's gunshot wounds, assault, or stabbings. But we did want to note that we, we don't follow self-inflicted or DV cases. So you don't handle the self-inflicted wounds or domestic violence cases? Nor child abuse or elderly abuse. Okay, because there's already other programs in place for those things, right? Right, right. Exactly. 
So I'm curious, I guess the physicians and nurses in the emergency department, they must notify you when they have someone who's been impacted by street violence. Is that how you find? So we have a pager system here in the hospital, which is pretty much like the pages of all where they would page you and you just come. You don't know exactly what you're coming to. We report to the trauma bay. So we really meet the patient when they first come through the building. Yeah. We'll have the initial contact with them. So really, we don't go to the patients. They kind of come to us here at the ED. So you go to the patient who also may have family members with them, right? Do you find yourself dealing with family situations as well? Yes. Unfortunately, COVID has changed a lot of things we do. So we have families. On one occasion, I had 300 people in the parking lot of the hospital. Wait, 300? Had six people come in shot. Two people were ran over by vehicles at the incident. And there was about 300 people in the parking lot. And I had to run and try to figure out what was going on. Lots of people that needed your services that day. And many of them didn't really need services. They were just being nosy. But I had to ascertain who was the family member and who was the nosy one. (laughs) But a lot of hands on deck working with not only the survivor, but also the family members, because, of course, you know, they're also affected. Yes. In general, what are the gender and age range of the people that you work with? Renee and I have actually both noticed a pattern of working with patients whom identify as being males and the age range varies. I mean, I think last week I was just working with a patient who was in his 50s. But Renee, I think you said you worked with 11 month olds. Last year now, we had an 11 month old who was shot three times and eventually died. So I've had 11 month olds to 70. And well, that just shows that. Street violence really affects a wide range of people. So how do you find people are receptive or not to making changes in their lives? When we introduce ourselves, we tell them the services we provide. And it's up to them to accept. So they can defer. They can say they don't want it. They can say, we'll talk about this later. Rabina does a good job with following up with people two weeks. Mm -hmm. Yep. I'll follow up post-discharge. I mean, there's a lot that goes in when a patient comes in through the ED, right? Medical attention is number one in priority. So we also have to remember that change does start from within. So they may not even be thinking about what sort of resources or needs they need addressed post-discharge. And so what we really try to do is we'll follow up with the patients after a couple of weeks and just kind of assess and see where they're at. This is Upstate's The Informed Patient podcast. I'm your host, Amber Smith, and I'm talking with social workers Rubina Dillon and Renee Gregg. I'd like to understand what can be done to reduce repeated violence. Can you explain how that works? As mentioned, we really do try to use a public health approach in reducing shootings and firearm-related deaths. So what we do is we use a three-prong approach to preventing violence. You know, the first is to interrupt the transmission. And then we try to identify and change the thinking of the highest potential transmitters. And then to be able to help change the group norms that come with that. Yeah. And personally, I just believe that we need to educate our community, our children on what happens when somebody is injured. 
They need to know what happens here in the hospital from the trauma bay to the morgue. A program in Philadelphia is called Cradle to Grave, and they actually bring the children in and teach them what happens. But then the perpetrators need to know what's going to happen to them. And dying is easy. So before you die, understand what your family's going to go through after you die. Education is just imperative in making a change in anybody. And with this public health issue, it needs to be done early and continuously. For people who agree to sign on and join this violence prevention program, what are the sorts of services that you can provide them? What's the benefit to them joining? For me, the VPROP social worker, I work with the injured patient, his family, and his friends. And I say his because, like we said earlier, it's normally a male, but we have had a lot of women. And we help them to cope with the injury itself because the extent of the injury can be death. It could be losing a limb. It could be prolonged PTSD, or it could be a combination of those things. We help them to make sure that they get the follow-up care they need and to connect them with community resources to promote healthy choices and to avoid street violence. At post-discharge is when I go into the home or into the community and we provide supportive case management and it's intense and we help them to obtain employment, to secure safe housing, to resume or obtain their education, to get hooked up with mental health services, to assist them in navigating the healthcare field, making sure that they have a PCA and that they're keeping their appointments and also making sure that if they have drug and alcohol use or abuse issues, that they get the support they need. So Renee wears a lot of hats at VPOP, whereas NUG, we actually have a case manager on site to help address any sort of case management needs. We also have a social worker. So as mentioned, I'm the social worker here at the hospital. And then we have a social worker in the community through SNUG. And then we also have an outreach team. The role of the outreach team is really just to help respond in shootings to prevent retaliation. And in order to prevent retaliation, it's done through mediation. We assist family members to those who have been injured or killed and also just mentor the high-risk youth and young adults that are involved in the program. And, you know, really just try to connect them into goals and any sort of like job opportunities, educational needs, as mentioned, drug and alcohol treatment, and overall to promote positive life skills. How much of the street violence in Syracuse is related to gang activity? That's a tough one. I mean, there really isn't a way to measure that, per se. A lot of the survivors that we work with, you know, oftentimes we'll hear that the incident was wrong place at the wrong time. So it, it's kind of hard to pinpoint how much is related to gang activity. What about poverty? Well, I'm all about the research. So research actually does show that communities with fewer resources have higher rates of violence. And it could be for many reasons, right? But I think it's important to remember that violence prevention programs are in place to hopefully help build the community up. What happens if a victim of street violence feels that they need to move to a different neighborhood to get away from the violence? Can you help them accomplish that? Yes. With funding from New York State Crimes Victims, we can help 
relocate people. We can't pay their rent for a year or anything like that. And they must find their own shelter. So I moved the family to North Carolina. New York State kept her in a hotel for 30 days. And as soon as she found a place to live and was approved, we sent her first month rent and her security deposit to that place and provided the movers for her to take her stuff from the storage place to the apartment. After that, she had to use her own resources to pay her rent. And she was lucky she found a job before she found a house. So she was able to just fit herself back into what she was used to doing. We moved people. I've moved people from Butternut Street to Prospect. And that's a very short distance. But for that mother with three kids, it was just changing vocation so that she felt that she was in a safer neighborhood. Helped her with calling her landlord and getting another apartment through the same company. And everything worked out fine. So each month we do a lot of moving because safety is a big issue. And I think it's important to note, too, that VPOP and Snug, we don't help with rapid rehousing but we do have funds to help assist in relocation. And not everyone I'm assuming would want to move or be able to move. And you've got ways to help people stay in their homes and still stay out of the violence, right? Yes. And that's where we'll kind of assess for safety and create a safety plan with the patient. And fortunately, everybody is not from a violent community. So we have suburban people who just need to pay their rent because they can't go to work because of their injuries. So we solicit the crime victims and they'll help pay mortgages or rent to keep them in their home, in their safe location while they're recuperating. So what do you say to someone who's reluctant to sign on and commit to trying to reduce violence in their life? How do you convince them that this is the way to go? I think the best thing is giving information. Information is education. So they'll hear about what we do and they might not want to be actively involved, but they need a resume wrote because they haven't had a job in a while and they would like to have a resume. I meet the person where they're at and help them with what they think they need. I'm not trying to give them my values. I want them to feel comfortable making the changes on their own and always telling them to keep my card or my pamphlet because if they ever need me, they can make that phone call. We can provide the tools and the skills, but really, again, as mentioned, the change has to happen from within, right? They have to want to make that change and to move forward in a healthy manner, right? Ms. Gregg, let me ask you, what do you hope to accomplish through VPOP? My goal is to save a life or to save lives. And I believe that's done through education and resources, just making sure people have what they need to have productive, healthy lives. That's my goal. I believe that's the hospital's goal also. And Ms. Dillon, the Should Never Use Guns program, what are you hoping to accomplish with that? I've seen a pattern of a lot of survivors of violence that come from various backgrounds and coming from a cultural background, I want to really break down the cultural barriers and to be able to normalize mental health. I think it's important that we discuss our feelings and move past the saying what goes on in the household stays in the household, right? So that's really a goal of mine to be able to normalize. If we can take medication daily and why can't we go see a therapist or seek help when needed? I appreciate both of you making time for this interview. 
Thank you. Thank you. My guests have been social workers, Renee Gregg and Rabina Dillon from the Violence Education Prevention Outreach Program and Should Never Use Guns Program. The Informed Patient is a podcast covering health, science, and medicine brought to you by Upstate Medical University in Syracuse, New York, and produced by Jim Howe. Find our archive of previous episodes at upstate.edu inform. This is your host, Amber Smith, thanking you for listening.